Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that chronologically takes you through Swedish history from when the first people arrived here right up to the modern day. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. And I know Orsa is ridiculously pleased with herself for coming up with the title of today's episode, so why don't you just go ahead and say it? <laughs> yeah, it's Law and Order Medieval Sweden Unit, part one. What's the dong dong dong? Law and Order had that had a very like funky style theme music, so I'm I'm imitating a bass guitar. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I love uh, Law and Order. <laughs> yeah, also watches too many Law and Order compilation videos on YouTube. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm watching Law and Order clips from season two, the best bits or something. It's... We should maybe clarify for those of you who aren't familiar. Uh, Law and Order was a 90s, early 2000s uh, crime, American crime drama set in new york city and it was on for some weird reason probably because swedish tv bought like 2000 episodes in bulk it was on in the afternoons when i came home from school uh as a young teenager excellent but enough about law and order although apparently it was a great show we're going to be talking about law and order this time but we should probably do our swedish phrase of the week we should. This week's phrase is Var ska sleven var om inte i gröten? Perhaps not a phrase you hear the most in Sweden, but still one that's used and it's quite funny when you translate it to English. Because in English it becomes Where shall the spoon be if not in the porridge? Uh, which to me, well, I don't know if that makes any sense at all, <laughs> but yeah. No, I don't know if it makes much sense to me either because uh, it really has very little to do with both spoons and porridge. Uh, it means that a person seeks out the place or the company where he or she feels at home. So I guess the spoon feels at home in the porridge and that's where it should be and maybe that's where it's from. I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that might make sense. But um, what could a more everyday use of the phrase be? Well, maybe say that you're a person who always liked horses and been around horses and lived somewhere where there were a lot of horses. Uh, you move to another part of the country, but you still end up living in an area with a lot of horses. Uh, someone might then say, well, of course, that's where you'd end up because where shall the spoon be if not in the porridge? You have always been around horses, so you will end up being around horses. Uh, yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense now, actually. Thank you for explaining it. And uh, our slightly interesting and weird phrase for you there this week. I have no real good way to transition from spoons and horses and porridge into <laughs> legal texts from the 13th century, but uh, so we should probably just change topic. Hard right. Yeah. Uh, let's look back at some medieval justice. Uh, as always, we draw on a variety of different sources, but for this episode, we should give a special shout out once again to Professor Dick Harrison who has written extensively on this in his books Swedish History, the Middle Ages, and also his book The Jarl's Century. 
But we should also give a shout out to uh, Frederic Charpentier Jungqvist, whose book uh, Den Longa Medeltiden, The Long Middle Ages, also had several excellent sections on uh, law and justice. Now, you might wonder why we are covering this now. It's not like a legal system arrived out of nowhere in Sweden at like 11.45 on Tuesday, the 3rd of November in 1206. Like, of course, that's not what happened. Yeah, it would have been fun if it did happen. Imagine what the Wednesday would have been like after that Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, When you have a chronological narrative like we do, it can sometimes be difficult to fit in more structural developments neatly into the series. Uh, But we wanted to talk about laws and punishments and developments in the justice system at this specific point because there are a lot of things that happen right now that changes and solidifies Sweden's justice system. Just like how we had to introduce Stockholm in general, uh, rather than talking about Stockholm for five minutes in every episode for the next 600 years. So chief amongst the important legal things that happen now is that we get the first written down legal text, the Vestgötalagen, Vestgötalaw, that is written in the first decade of the 1200s. Now, we've already mentioned the Vestgöta law in previous episodes, mainly because it has a good list of kings. Another reason why we want to talk about laws and legal systems right now on our journey is because the developments that take place in this time period, the late 1100s and early 1200s, is another factor in what solidifies Sweden as a proper nation-state right around this time. In the introduction to many of the oldest Scandinavian legal texts, it says, Land skull melag bigas, or in English, country shall upon the law be built. And in fact, those words, but in their slightly different Danish, are still engraved outside the courthouse in Copenhagen, for example. It's no coincidence that this phrase starts to frequently appear in the 1200s, because uh, they weren't just empty words, but they were the cornerstone of a way of thinking about nations and states and the construction of these nation-states. Developing a written-down legal system that was codified and had precedent, and to a certain extent unifying the law to be the same or at least similar across the whole country, is a vital thing that happens right now, and something that moves Sweden from the type of ad hoc, take-it-as-we-come legal system during the Viking Age to the medieval Sweden that we've seen take shape over the last couple of episodes. Uh, That's not to say that Sweden was completely lawless before we get to this point in time, because we've covered laws and rules during the Viking Age as well. I remember reading Thomas Locke in my political philosophy class at university, and whilst that was a great class and Professor Morris with his unlit pipe uh, that he had when he taught, they deserve a lot of credit. My memory of Locke's writing is a bit hazy. But what I remember is this idea that a sense of justice is deeply rooted in us humans. Uh, We want to have order and rules and we want to know that there is a framework in place so that we can trust people because it just makes everything in life much easier. 
so that presumably applied to people who've lived in Sweden throughout history. Ever since the first people settled in Sweden, there would have been rules and laws and regulations. What makes the big difference starting in the early 1200s and onwards is that before this point, it wasn't written down. It was an entirely oral tradition. Yes, and this older oral tradition was much more local, traditional, rooted in folklore and storytelling. Previously, the lawmen, a title which we briefly mentioned in passing previously, uh, but were sort of the people in charge of the law in local areas. They had to learn the law by heart and speak it out loud at public gatherings so that people could hear it over and over again to make sure that everybody had a reference place in this legal practice that was only oral. This oral system might seem a bit informal to us like it oh maybe it didn't count all the time or it wasn't as strict because we're so used to having everything written down and to be able to go back and check things in a book if we forget it um but that doesn't mean that this oral tradition was any less strict or serious there's evidence to suggest that these orally preserved laws were just as deeply ingrained in people as written ones are now We know something that we hear a lot just as well or perhaps better than something we can go back and check repeatedly, such as uh, also the Law and Order theme tune. Yeah, or when I was reading about this, I came to think about how I still remember my grandparents' landline phone number. I haven't called that phone number in 20 years. Uh, My grandparents have now passed away. I still remember that phone number it was i just knew it i didn't have it written down as a kid i don't remember your phone number chris no because it's always been written down in my phone i've never had to commit it to memory and maybe you can make that comparison with an oral versus a written down legal tradition you know if if you only hear something you sort of have to commit it to memory in a different way True, so uh, people were perhaps not less bound by these laws or felt less bound by them just because they weren't written down, just that we can't check them now because uh, there's no one around to tell us what they were. Um, Not having a written down law, though, did allow for more room for discussion and looking at things on a case-by-case basis. But just like with remembering phone numbers, it might also be that back in the day, people remembered the laws better, and therefore it was harder to get away with stuff. It was more ingrained in people, maybe. Yeah. And early Nordic laws talked about specific situations. If X does this to Y, then Z will happen. Process and ceremony was also more important when the legal tradition was oral, likely to some extent help people commit things to memory, but also because it helps to hold things together when you have nothing tangible to refer back to. One critical aspect of the legal tradition in Sweden before the Middle Ages is how direct it was. Uh, There were no middlemen, uh, no one to execute the law, so to say. Charpentier Ljungqvist write in his book that the pre-medieval legal system simply would not have worked if it wasn't for private administration of justice and the use of violence. Uh, If someone killed your friend or uh, a family member and that person had been found guilty, not only was it the 
honorable thing to go and kill that person as revenge, you simply had to. Because who else was going to? Who else was going to execute the law? There wasn't that institution. And it might not just be as severe as killing. Whatever it was, you, as the victim, were in charge of getting back what was yours because there was no police or correctional service or anything like that. Uh, this can be seen in how fines, uh, which was a common form of punishment, went directly to the victim and not to the king or the state. Uh, in short, administration of justice was a much more direct affair between perpetrator and victim. This gave rise to infamous blood feuds, which was a practice that would go on well into the Middle Ages, but that are especially connected to pre-medieval legal practices. You had a system where you took back what was yours and carried out the punishment yourself. This was part of a strong code of honour, an idea of living up to society's social expectations to defend yourself and your family. And we saw this in uh, the previous episode when Circa uh, II and Eric were fighting each other and how they could get away with it if the Bielbu family took the action and killed Sverka because it was all part of a blood feud rather than the running of Sweden as a country. Not only was it necessary to do this yourself because there was no police or correctional system, the risk of blood revenge was also a great deterrence of crime. I mean, you might think twice about nicking Bjorn's cow if his entire family would come and hunt you down if he found out it was you. Blood feuds also created a vicious circle. This practice of an eye for an eye was risking making all of Sweden blind, to paraphrase Gandhi. Uh, the practice was extra messy because not only were you allowed to take revenge on the person who had committed a crime against you, but you could take it out on any male member of his or her family. Plus, if someone was sentenced to pay a fine and that person didn't or couldn't pay up, his or her family members were liable to pay it instead. The 1200s started to see blood feuds become less tolerated, and both the state and the church worked quite hard to stop the practice, but it would still continue and was socially acceptable for quite a while after this period. Why do we see a change in legal practice and in attitudes, like with the blood feuds, now in the early 1200s? As always, it didn't come about overnight and old ideas, just like with the blood feuds, died hard and slowly, but we can still point to factors that explain why the shift happened now. Sources on size of the population are very difficult to come by this early in Swedish history. It's not really until the 1700s that we get reliable figures for how many people actually lived in Sweden. But nonetheless, it seems like the population of Sweden grew quite a lot in the Middle Ages. Uh, so there were more people around and towns grew, uh, which could be one reason why it became important to have a more formal and effective way of assuring law and order in the now more populous nation. Uh, the decades around the turn of the 13th century also saw trade booming across Europe, 
Uh, most importantly for Sweden, trade around the Baltic Sea flourished. We've seen trade missions to England uh, before, and Sweden prospered from these links thanks to being relatively rich in iron, which was a hot commodity, but also because improved farming production led to higher yields uh, that could be traded when it comes to farming products. Uh, the increased trade and improved trade networks meant that Sweden and the rest of Scandinavia firmly became a part of a medieval international economy. And being part of this trade economy meant that more people were coming to Sweden, people with experience of life in other European countries were settling here, bringing with them their experience of and knowledge of a more Roman Catholic justice system. And perhaps uh, more expectations of having that in Sweden as well. Exactly. They'd want the same standard. And speaking of coming back with influences from the continent, in episode 29 about Christianity in this time period, we talked about the education system in Sweden. If you remember from that episode, we talked about how there were no universities in Sweden yet, so those select few who were very, very few who did manage to go on to higher education had to travel abroad to study. Many went to Paris, where a community of Scandinavian students were forming, but others went to school in modern-day Germany, perhaps influenced by like the traders who were helping to found Stockholm. Well, one thing they all brought back with them was a knowledge of a more modern legal system with Roman and Catholic influences. And these were the people who, when they returned to Sweden, would go on to hold high offices within the church or together with the king in running the state. So it came as a natural consequence that they were the people who began implementing what they'd learned on the continent. You mentioned the king there, Chris, and that's another reason for why the legal system undergoes a change during this period, namely the increased strength of the monarchy. In several episodes now, really ever since Olof Sjöldkonung, we have seen a continuously stronger monarchy, even though there has definitely been ups and downs with individual kings. Uh, the Middle Ages saw kings becoming guardians of the law. Part of what it meant to be king was that you had a certain responsibility for upholding laws in your kingdom. It, taking on this role of carers for law and order made the Swedish kings not just rulers in a sort of I have the largest sword, Viking-like sense of the word, but it made them powerful protectors of the state in a medieval sense. Uh, importantly, it also further legitimized the role of Swedish kings in the eyes of the Catholic Church and meant that the Church threw even more support behind the monarchy. Yeah, it's a sort of a self-fulfilling growth cycle. Um, and speaking of the church, that's a really important player to talk about when we talk about law and order in the Middle Ages. So far, we've seen how foreign influences, be that from trade or from Swedes returning from studying abroad, and an increasingly strong monarchy brought about changes in the legal system. The increased strength and presence of the church in Sweden at this time is another important factor that changes legal practices. Firstly, the church had its own legal system called canonical law. 
canonical law regulated church matters, as we saw in the episode about Christianity, as a sort of law for everything that happened within the church. But it also regulated matters that we today consider just part of normal criminal or civil law, such as the laws about inheritance, family laws, and laws against incest. In fact, most crimes that had anything to do with sex were governed by the church, but they also ruled on other crimes such as perjury and extortion. The idea seemed to be that anything that had to do with mankind's spiritual nature or morals was to be regulated by the church, and material matters were regulated by the state. But it can still be difficult to comprehend for us in the 21st century why certain things back in the 12th or 13th centuries were seen as church law matters and not state matters. The church also argued for, and were very successful in claiming that, church law was superior in cases where canonical law and normal law might disagree. Uh, Additionally, you could be punished by both, depending on your crime. That's a bit unfair. But being sentenced in accordance with church law might in some way be preferable to being sentenced by normal law, at least in the sense that the church officials were more likely to be legally trained. Uh, Members of the clergy had to study canonical law as part of their training, whereas the people who presided over normal legal proceedings, like lawmen, lacked any kind of training for most of the Middle Ages. Church officials were also much more visible authorities in people's lives compared to secular authorities. Uh, If a Swedish person met an authority figure in the High Middle Ages, it was much more likely to be someone connected to the church than someone connected to the state. The church's organization and reach of power in terms of let's call it boots on the ground, was just much more extensive than the relatively underdeveloped state system. This increased influence of the church changed two quite fundamental aspects of the Swedish legal system. Firstly, it placed the focus on the individual. Whereas before, like we just mentioned, the entire family got involved, both in the sense that the victim's family got involved in seeking revenge and having blood feuds, but also in the sense that the part of the perpetrator wasn't just as an individual, but spilled over onto that person's entire family. The church opposed not just the practice of collective punishment, but the entire idea behind it. Instead, the church emphasised the individual and the idea that he or she is personally and solely responsible for their own action. This move to make the outlook of the law go from collective to individual is a change that came about in the high middle ages and has stayed with us since. I mean, it's not like these days if my brother gets a speeding ticket, I would, by association, be liable to pay it. The very thought of that is quite laughable today, and uh, that all stems from a shift that we see happening right now in our timeline. Quite a fundamental shift, too. Indeed. Uh, The second part where Christianity changed the whole outlook of the law was to place increased importance on the motive behind a crime. Uh, This was something that in legal practice before the 1200s or so had been a lot less relevant. 
that like we said earlier, legal practices in Sweden during, say, the Viking Age was much more specific and not normative. It was about what to do with person X if he had done Y thing to person Z. And they weren't really interested in why it happened. Uh, This all changed now and why someone had acted in the way they did became more relevant. And there were also new ideas about how the motive behind something changed the severity of the crime. Yes, and here we touch upon something that we found very interesting when we researched this episode, because it's so different from how we view things today. The interest in the motive behind a crime that comes about now in the high Middle Ages is something that stayed with us. However, people then were much more interested in whether or not a crime had been committed openly or in secret. Yeah, this comes up time and time again, and crimes committed in secrecy are seen as so much worse and judged more harshly than crimes committed out in the open. Uh, This can be seen in how theft, breaking into someone's property and taking their stuff without them seeing, that is one of the worst crimes in the eyes of the law at this point in time, and most likely also in the eyes of people. Theft was sometimes punished by death, whereas murder, killing someone, if it was done openly and in a sort of fair fight uh, without any sneaky secret tricks, that did not necessarily carry a death penalty. To us today, it seems quite strange that theft is judged harsher than murder. But to understand why, we must take into consideration the importance that medieval Swedes placed on honour. And this is where that idea of the motive behind the crime and the way of you doing it comes into play. Honour was everything to medieval Swedes. Honour was the only protection that men and women had. A person's honour, their standing as a righteous, trustworthy individual in the local community was the most important thing they had. Imagine each medieval Swede as a stock on the stock exchange. Their honour, their trustworthiness was what determined their value. Uh, If that value was high, then everyone wanted to work with them, be with them, make them part of the community. Uh, But if it was low, no one wanted to associate with them. And in a society where you are dependent on collaboration with your local community, literally for survival, you are done for if no one wants to be in a team with you. Medieval Sweden was a society where the ability to trust in your fellow man and fellow woman meant everything. So when someone committed a crime that broke that trust, you can see how that was the sort of worst thing that could happen. I really like the idea of this uh, stock market of Swedes. <laughs> did you come up with that or was it in a book? No, I did come up with that That's myself. very good. Thank I'm going to buy shares of, in Orsa. Oh, uh, yeah. oh that's sweet. Yeah. I, I might buy some shares in you. Yeah, oh, nice. Um, but yeah, as, as a consequence of all this, anything that involved lying or acting clandestinely was judged harshly slander and libel, both things that affect a person's trustworthiness and honour, were terrible crimes. For example, it was illegal to call someone a coward or a whore. Good. 
I think I hate that there has now been a casual use of the word whore. Uh, so bring back that medieval law. We've just mentioned how theft could be judged harder than murder, uh, but this emphasis on honor and the new ideas on the importance of motive meant that there were degrees within a crime. Like, for example, murder. Killing someone in an honest fight was not as bad as, say, killing a sleeping woman, uh, because that just shows that you're cowardly and dishonorable attacking someone who is defenseless. I guess some of that still uh, exists in America, where Europeans think it's a bit strange how Americans have sort of first degree, yeah. second degree, and third degree murder, yeah. whereas in Europe today, it's just murder. You, yeah, mostly. You murdered someone, this is the punishment. So in some ways, yeah, the, the American murder system, at least, is uh, slightly medieval Swedish, I guess. Mm. But one other interesting note, just quickly, on the increased importance of the motive. This seems to not have translated to the idea of self-defense, which is a feature of many legal systems around the world today, including Sweden. The idea that the motive behind, say, a murder was that you acted in self-defense doesn't seem to have taken hold in the High Middle Ages. In fact, self-defense as a mitigating circumstance for a crime seems to have only been applicable in cases of rape or voldjestning. Voldjestning is something where we don't really have a translation for, but it's basically when someone comes in and insists on staying in your house and eating your food without your invitation or acceptance of them being there. <laughs> well, that reminds me of like when you used to go out a lot more and all your mates went back to yours after the clubs had closed and you just wanted to go to bed. Yeah. That's a modern day voldiestning. Unfortunately, that's not a crime anymore, I don't think. <laughs> yes. But and it's, so self-defense, uh, it was only applicable as a sort of justified mitigating circumstance if that had happened or in cases of rape. But the influence of the church makes the law more focused on the individual, like we said, and in increase the relevance of the motive. But before we let go of the church, we have to mention another area where their influence changes things, and that is sex. Always interested in the sexy, sexy business the church is, yeah. uh, both then and now, I think. But there had been laws regulating sexual relationships before Christianity came to Sweden, but now that it's firmly established as the country's main religion, it's changed both the meaning and traditions around things like marriage. Swedes married before they were Christians as well, of course, but Christianity ties the idea of marriage to a law and makes sexual relations outside of marriage illegal. Interestingly, there are sort of different levels of illegality when it came to relationships outside of marriage. For example, there was a difference between if both parties were married to someone else and slept with each other, or if neither were married, or if just one were married. All three were illegal, but they were actually different crimes. And the laws on sex outside of marriage will have a huge impact on children born outside of marriage and indeed on the parents of those children, especially their mothers. Children born outside marriage were now the product of a crime and a source of social stigma just by their existence. This 
put an end, at least officially, to the long-established system of thrill-law in Sweden. A frilla, or many frill-law, in plural, was a system of accepted, legitimate mistresses that had been around for hundreds of years. Actually, calling it a mistress is a bit of a misnomer, because that implies that there was a level of secrecy involved, which there wasn't. Sometimes a thriller was just a woman that a man had a relationship to that was like a marriage in all but name, uh, with sexual relationship, partnership, cohabiting, it just wasn't uh, a marriage. So a bit like you have me. <laughs> yeah, we are cohabiting uh, relationship people without being married yeah so can, can you say i'm your frilla then? yeah i i get i don't know i'm <laughs> to you i think the word has died out at this point in time but yeah yeah but this could also be a relationship this frilla that existed parallel to a man being married to another woman either way the point is that it was legitimate and socially accepted to have a frilla as well as a wife meaning that children born to a man and his thriller were not seen as lesser in any way to children coming from a married relationship. But now this will all change with the church's influence on the new emerging legal system. Still, the system of law died slowly in Sweden, especially in the upper classes, where it continued to exist in some form or another for another couple of centuries. Christianity getting all involved in the legal system also has a very negative impact on the lives of homosexuals in Sweden because it is now that homosexuality becomes illegal and it will stay illegal to the hugely detrimental cost of countless individuals' happiness, health and self-fulfillment from now in the 1200s until 1944. Uh, Don't get me wrong, it wasn't like Sweden before this legal change in the high Middle Ages was like an LGBTQI paradise of openness and tolerance. But it wasn't until now that a sort of iron gate of this is wrong, this is punishable descends on the country. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's quite uh, sad that this is, you know, lasts for 750 odd Mm. years. What Christianity does do in terms of sex and the law is to introduce the idea of sin in relation to sex. And what is a sin is then, as a consequence, also against the law and illegal in everyday life as well. Now, we're going to press pause here. We have much more to say on the subject of law and order, including the practical application and what punishment people faced. But I think that's going to be too much to fit into one episode. Yeah, I think you're right. We're about 40 minutes in now. So uh, rather than overwhelming you with uh, more on this topic today, why don't we stop for now? And we're back next time with uh, the sequel, Law and Order Medieval Sweden Unit. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Uh, Until then, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at Flatpak Sweden on Twitter. And just search Flatpak History of Sweden to find us on Facebook. And our email address is flatpakhistorysweden at gmail.com. Yes, uh, we love to hear from everyone. And thanks to everyone who's gotten in touch with us recently. Um, If you do like us and want to leave us a review, please do so on whatever platform you're able to. And if you can't, uh, write it on a post-it note and... uh... Leave it at your office in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, no one is in their office these days because of COVID. I am. 
write it on a post-it note, put it in your own kitchen where perhaps only you see it, but, but you've still left a review. Open your window and shout out to the world. A flat pack history of Sweden is great. Even if you do none of those things, we still like you. So <laughs> it's not mandatory. Uh, of course we do. Thank you so much for listening. That's all for now. See you in two weeks. Yes. Goodbye. Hey, Dale. Yeah, cool. Uh, an interesting and slightly weird phrase for you there this week. Um, and I really have no good way to go from spoons and horses. Yeah, well, you've just skipped a huge oh, chunk that I was yeah, going yeah, to say. Yeah, you've sorry. robbed me of a sorry. phrase. Yeah, but... sorry. Um, yeah, that, that, that might make sense. But um, what could a more everyday use of the phrase be? Seems to be mainly only iTunes where you can actually give a review. But, um, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, there's websites and things like Podchaser and stuff, which is a good sort of like... Leave reviews if you can't. Yeah. And if, if you, you can't you know, leave if you can. it... If you can, you said if you can't. <laughs> <laughs>